to episode 33 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And firstly, um, we'd like to apologise for the delay in bringing this particular episode to you because um, various work and logistical issues prevented us from being able to do it last fortnight in which we talked about, uh, we would have talked about Ali's wedding and Lawrence of Arabia, which we hope you've had a chance to see. This week we're turning our attention to Miguel Arteta's timely class comedy drama Beatrice at Dinner. We'll look at what's happening over at Mubi and open the Cultural Capital Film Diary and count down our top three films shot in one location. But first, lock the door, break a window and let yourself in. It's Darren Aronofsky's mother. Sorry. Mother! Mother! Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? Darren Aronofsky returns to the big screen following 2014's Noah with mother exclamation point. Jennifer Lawrence stars in both the film and the vast majority of Aronofsky's frames as an unnamed woman who's married to a poet played by Javier Bardem. She spends her time slowly renovating their ginormous secluded mansion as he struggles with writer's block. Into this somewhat strained dynamic walks the Doctor, played by Ed Harris. His wife, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, soon shows up as well. When their two sons also make an appearance, the woman, played by Jennifer Lawrence, struggles with the realisation that she has surrendered almost all control over her home. What starts as a psychological drama concerning unwanted house guests soon segues into something else entirely. And a warning, we will be discussing spoilers, but before we do that, we're going to have a general chat about this film. Uh, consult the show notes and you'll see where you should fast forward to if you don't want Mother's ending to be ruined for you. On that note, Eloise, did Mother earn its exclamation mark? <laughs> I have a weird thing with exclamation marks in movie titles because when writing about them, it just interferes with sentence flow. Um, I don't know about the exclamation mark or not, but I didn't like this film at all. I despised it from the very beginning, pretty much. I don't really have anything coherent to say, although I'm sure that I will no doubt um, shout some things at some point. But I feel like that the film is really not very coherent either. And so maybe that can explain why I don't really have anything coherent to say. I mean, there's like a number of ways in which this film can be read. It starts off just as this psychological thriller, as you say, about a house that becomes the space of the horror. Um, it's a, like an indictment of celebrity culture as well. It's an allegory, a religious allegory. Um, it's a commentary on, you know, the media, I suppose, as well. Mm-hmm. The but writing I, process, the yeah, act of creation. Yeah, and, but I just feel like this has been done in so many more narratives, so many other ways that have just been so much more enjoyable and... Importantly, ways that have been much more artistic, and I just really didn't like this film at all. I mean, it's set up, and there's been, you know, as our listeners know, it's incited a lot of commentary, a lot of debate. Do you or do you not get this film? Whether or not that, that, I mean, that's not a very nice thing to say of people, I don't think. It's Mm. a farce, basically. It's set up as a horror film, but it's, it's a farce. But I just really didn't find it enjoyable at all. Andy? 
Um, yeah, I pretty much disagree with everything you just said. Uh, I think that it's not intended to be a farce. I think this, the problem has been that it's been marketed by Paramount as being a horror movie. I think the trailer sets it up and sets expectations up for this to be some sort of domestic thriller. And it's simply not that. I don't think it has any interest in being that. I think from the very, very opening frames, we get a, a shot of the house that's been burned down or it's been there's been some sort of incineration happening there. Mm-hmm. We get a shot of um, Javier Bardem's poet holding a large, heavy crystal, and then we get a close-up on Jennifer Lawrence's face burning like she's some sort of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. So straight away, I think this is meant to be seen as symbolic and we're not meant to see things as specifically narratively tied together, even though that may want to be seen or may suggest that way to begin with. And certainly that's the way we're led to believe, but with all the promotional material, which I can imagine from a studio like Paramount, who've just spent $30 million on what is essentially a vanity project for an art auteur, um, is a reasonable thing to do, like to be worried about this, how you're going to market this thing and how you're going to get people there. So I think the, there's, there's a problem there. I also think there's a big problem with the way that Aronofsky's gone about promoting it, in which every interview has taken every opportunity possible to say, oh, there are allegories. Maybe people should look, look at it as a religious thing. And like he's trying to explain the film, which if anyone who's watched Twin Peaks The Return will know, do not go around explaining things. If you don't explain a joke, you don't need to explain you don't the want film. To isolate people. Yeah, so I think he's trying to open it up to a wider audience by going, like, it's not as, you know, as arty and as weird as it seems, which I think is again messing with people's expectations and seeing the way that people have come out of the cinema and we've just got you know an F score on cinema whatever that cinema score thing is in America um, which he's you know reacted to very defensively is making this film like is distracting basically so I think once you get back to the actual film itself I think he's really in you know he wrote this in what five days I think which is a change from taking ten years to make um, Noah and I think a similar sort of time to get from the beginning to end for Black Swan. So this has got a totally different energy I think to those films even though it's got a similar sort of obsession with not telling a story straight. Like he's completely obsessed with this idea about how can I represent this thing and how can I take these themes and then make some sort of weird thing out of it rather than just telling the story straight. So I don't know if, if you liked The Fountain but I thought that was like really ambitious and really interesting but ultimately a total failure. But at the same time, I absolutely loved it because I was like, who else is going for this sort of shooting for the stars sort of thing? So even though Mother, you know, does over, you know, there are problems with it and I'm not wholly in love with it. But I think it's it's exactly the sort of film I'm really excited about seeing because so many, you can't just be bored with it. You have to come away going, oh, okay, he's failed and it's, and it's shit and I didn't want to look at Jennifer Lawrence's face for 66 minutes, mm. which this film makes you do. Or, but at the same time, it's like no, almost no other filmmaker is just throwing this much out there and just going, well, yeah, this is what I wanted to make. And I think... You know, there are so many examples of it being an artistic success because there is no soundtrack. There is the sounds, are, you know, are environmental sounds, but then they've been played with this really disconcerting, unsettling effect, which is not the sort of thing, that, you know, you, you, you tend to do necessarily if you're going to be telling a straight story about the creative process or an allegorical story with biblical overtones or whatever else, you know, he's actually going for. Um, so, yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, I did not, and in fact, I was bored by it. In fact, I almost walked out of the really? movie. I wanted and to walk out. I, as well. Yeah, I all, yeah. and and I've never felt that way about any movie. I think in memory, anyway. Um, but I didn't because I'm a professional. Um, <laughs> but my God, it tested my patience. It felt like up until the very final scene. I'd like to discuss that again a bit later. But um, I just felt like he hit like one note and then just kept on like staying on it's like the amount of times Jennifer Lawrence had to be like why are you there why are you doing this get out of my room get out get out get out get out like like for my god for like 50 times she's telling people to get out in this weird heightened kind of way it just it really grated on me and I thought it wasn't you can tell it was written in five days I thought he <laughs> had he it's nowhere near as I think he's nowhere near as provocative or clever as he thinks he is, 
the fire, there would be elements in that final uh, sequence that were quite, I found, offensive for what they, what I think he was saying about um, the role people play in supporting artistic endeavour. I don't really, I mean, there's so many different ways of reading this, but the way I read it was he was equating himself, the director, Darren Aronofsky, was equating himself with the Javier Varnem character with this idea of the creator, with the idea of God, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, as Eloise, you said, I think this is stuff that's been done before a billion times in much more interesting ways. And I really missed when she left Michelle Pfeiffer. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was great. Yeah, she Michelle Pfeiffer some, was great. Yeah, she was sort of... Yeah, she brought some life to the film that I don't think uh, Bar them or indeed Jennifer Lawrence particularly had. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I thought... I mean, the, the way... The reason that I say this is a farce is because basically it's... There's, like, you can tell that at its core there are these comedic setups that in some in you know a different kind of mode would be comedy but they are ridiculous they're stupid all of the characters are are, you know larger than life they all do Mm. things that Mm. uh you know you wouldn't expect people to do it's just it's just all too much everything's a big pile on you know and characters keep appearing from nowhere there's no explanation and they just come and they won't listen um but there are farces that do this to a much better extent even you know a lot of these screwballs uh, school comedies will, will do it um, and you know the idea of the pylon of characters you know in one place is to prove some kind of point or in fact to just infuriate that one character so much in this sense it was just infuriating the audience what was infuriating mm. me so the behavior of all of the characters is so ridiculous michelle pfeiffer ed harris by damn they were running around like headless chooks even jennifer <laughs> lawrence true. i thought towards the oh end God, perhaps, I totally disagree even jennifer lawrence is not fighting for herself enough. She's not sticking up for herself, and that just became so infuriating in a way. And I found the incessant build-up of this behaviour was dull. It was not, as you said, and as I was bored by it, I found the way that their behaviour was treated was just really dull. I read a review. The reviewer was saying, like, nobody in their right mind would treat anyone that way, and that's what makes this film so ridiculous that you just, like, you know, can't take it seriously or whatever. But the very thing is that I think people do treat other people that way, which is why it can't be, you know, taken in this particular way as just a comedy, you know, like, oh, well... Um, Where do you this comedy thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certain people have said it's a comedy, and I don't agree. I mean, I'm saying it's a farce, but it's not a comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it is f- ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, prima facie, well, it's ridiculous. I, I feel like I no, I don't think it's ridiculous, but I also feel like I should do. We should do the spoiler warnings if we're going to go into okay, this. my okay. explanation. For, Spo- my understanding is essentially quite different. Spoiler warning. Okay. Um, the um, just. To me, it felt like, and I don't know the best way to express this, but it felt like he was bedding down on like that one note, just hammering it into the ground rather than using it to build up into different, to go somewhere interesting. So rather than going somewhere interesting, I felt like Aronofsky took this sort of premise and then just kept on pummeling it quite, quite literally in that final scene, just like... So, in such an over-the-top, uh, tiring, no, kind of exhausting no way. Yeah, there's no, there's no filter. There's no light or It was movement. exhausting. And the thing is, like, some of these things are exhausting. Some of these setups are exhausting, but there's payoff. I didn't, I didn't get a payoff from, from this. 
No. Um, uh, yeah. I don't Except know. for maybe the very final shot, which I would like to discuss in a moment. But yeah. Andy, your defence. So well, my, my well, essentially, I didn't take Jennifer Lawrence as being a human. I took her as being this figment of the house. Didn't you just say that we shouldn't read it as an allegory? Oh, no, no, I was, no, I was saying he was suggesting that. No, I, I'm not right. adverse to reading it as an allegory. I mean, I'm sure if you want to see it as a climate change denialist, oh, yeah. you know, treatise, then that's exactly what you'll find. But um, I think right from the beginning, I was like, okay, so there's obvious ties here where she puts her hand against a wall and then she feels a pulse, like you get an image of a fetus. So there's, there's this extension that she and the house are simply creation by Bardem to, you know, accept, to enable him to become a really successful poet who can afford to live in a mansion in the countryside, which is a totally ludicrous premise. But it gives an interesting well, idea of yeah. this idea, you know, of men just brutalising women and the world in order to make something that they think is beautiful and is going to bring them adoration. So it's about the failure of the male ego is the way I read it. And she was just simply this perfect creation who would come along and cook and clean and be- rebuild this house for him that had been destroyed in a previous act of creation. So yeah. it, was, it was kind of, that was, I didn't think it was horror, but I thought it was horrific. Like, you know what really annoyed me is that there, you know, I think that, that Aronofsky is trading on certain elements of the horror genre and of the history of the type of film in which, you know, the house, the place of refuge ultimately becomes the trap and will ultimately be your downfall. You know, in some ways that is the history that he's trading on, but he's also really stepping away from that. But I just thought it was quite sluggish because for the first half, it's set up that Javier Bardem character is gaslighting his wife he's setting her up you know he's victimizing her you know possibly drugging her or whatever but basically she has no agency and that he's the one with the agenda Mm. and then halfway through there's this moment where it kind of switches and there's about five minutes where every look that every look on Jennifer Lawrence's face is one of, um, you know, kind of scheming that she's evil. And, and the way it's, it, it positions the audience is to expect that, you know, is to kind of do a switch and think, oh, maybe she's the one who's in charge of this plan after all. And that we were tricked as the audience and that Javier Bardem thinks he's in, in charge, but he's not. But then it's, it's only about five minutes. It's a really brief interlude of like the, this is the, the ball being in her court. No, no oh, when she becomes pregnant that moment um and after that that's it and then it just goes back and it slips back into Javier Bardem being in charge and that she's lost all of her instincts and at that moment I was just like this is really sloppy because I can see exactly what he's doing and none of it has achieved anything like there was no it didn't even like sustain my interest after no after getting that bit where I, I think oh maybe she's got some she has some knowledge that 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 Javier Bardem does not have but it was just it was all a trick it was a gimmick yeah well if she moment. can't if she's a creation of him and he requires well, her to why act selfishly that in five minute just... sequence in it just seemed like a waste of my time to no. be quite honest well, I I completely agree. I mean, the fire, this ostensibly bonkers final act, I would just bored me. I, I enjoyed seeing Kristen Wiig. Uh, I thought it was, it was fun <laughs> yes. to see her. Yeah. But I was just, uh, I mean, well, it didn't even, it did. It borderline offended me too. I don't know. I was just, I was going, oh god, they're doing this. Oh god, they're now doing. Uh, like it was just. It was ridiculous, and I did think at the end of it, what was the point of that? What was the point of this film? Um, I thought it was to show you... Well, this is the thing. Is that so many people can take all these different allegories out of it if they want to. I, for me, it was just a straight 
reading of uh, the creative process, just really vividly realised. Well, uh, yeah, uh, and but it's also a very specific creative process. It's yes. extremely different. Yes. To anybody who, like, you know, I'm sorry to bring up David Lynch again, but you know, he talks about creativity as his act of joy and freedom. Yes. And you, there's no need to punish yourself. You know, the Van Gogh would have been just as good a, a painter if he hadn't tortured himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is what I thought made this movie interesting. When the that final scene, so so I'm happy that I didn't walk out because that final scene where it suggests that this is like a repeated process that they're doomed to live forever. And I went, my God, this slog of a movie, this uh, horrendous, the horrendous events, the tedium, the, um, yeah, the just frustration I had with the fact that Jennifer Lawrence's character was trying to get people, weekly trying to get people out of the house and they wouldn't leave and she kept on trying to get them out of the house for an hour and for two hours. Um, that, that it suggested that she's doomed to do that constantly uh, for every every time he picks up his pen and paper mm. I thought was quite <laughs> a depressing sad and interesting thing to say about the creative process yeah. I mean it is kind of I mean it's kind of a I mean is writing I mean is it writing as much as a slog as that and is it always a slog as that forever 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 and so is that just Aronofsky just championing his own yeah. you know his yeah. own yeah. achievements so. because yeah. he's one he's creative maze. genius who can yeah. overcome all of these struggles <laughs> over and over I know yeah 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 exactly well, that's I, one reading but I did not yes. get that reading I, I know um, but I think I it's the archetype the archetypal tortured poet the tortured, it is, I don't it think is. he's one of those and people. my god he tortured his audience I mean so you didn't I've, think Jennifer's Lawrence's performance was good? No, no. Not, it was, I mean, I guess it was good, maybe. Well, I, I mean, how can I even tell? But she is certainly, um, I don't know. She didn't do just, much for me. No, she didn't. It's hard to explain. I. She's very muted and I'm, I'm no, no. Muted? Well, I, I mean, that's the point. That's what character is, you know, someone who's weak yeah, and like weak and can't speak up, can't speak up for herself. She's like, oh, what are you doing? Get off the bench! Oh, well, yeah. like, don't do that! Don't do that! Like just over and over again for two hours. This was not like that. Oh, you saw a different Lord. movie. I mean, she did say it a few times, yes, but I don't think it was like it was, she was. It was the no, same. I'm exactly I mean, that, I mean, perfect. But oh, like Aronofsky does in this film. Uh, this is like it's a super super interesting premise you know the idea of being trapped in a place and never being able to get out this is her purgatory for me I didn't read it as you know which is interesting and I'm 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 looking on it with some renewed interest now that you know is the the process of the commentary on the writing process being this really horrific, um, difficult thing. I read it as being that, that he had agency and he was choosing to repeat this because at the end of the day, it was all about his glory. Yes, and, and he, so gets he was the using glory. her as yeah. a pawn. So it wasn't so much that he was trapped, but that she, he was trapping her. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I love this kind of narrative. It's so interesting, but just the execution drove me mad hilariously it reminded me a lot in narrative wise of this episode of Buffy <laughs> from season 4 called Where the Wild Things Are which hilariously is the worst episode of all of the episodes of Buffy um, where they get trapped in a house and they can't they're condemned to be there because of the evil spirit of a woman who, who tortured children there in the past or something anyway but you know it was it's like the house is the, the living being the, the house is the sufferer rather than the people are the sufferers and so I find that 
quite interesting. And of course, I mean, it's not the only narrative that has, that has used the house for that purpose. It was just one that came to mind because they're both terrible in my mind. I mean, I also, I hated the sound design. It was one of the worst things about it. Really? Whoa. I just felt like I hated it so much and I, part of my life is writing on and thinking about anxiogenic sound effects, which is what this film was doing, uh, as far as I'm aware, was, like, getting sound effects to, to make this incredible soundtrack, but I hated it. It was like the sound designer took all of the sounds that horror and anxiety films have, have used and made iconic and was just butchering them. To me, that's what it sounded like. It did nothing for me. And I know that you have said you loved it, and other mm. people say it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't stand it. I think it kept connecting, connecting back with Jennifer Lawrence's experience. Yeah, look, I'll give you that. There was that actually moment in one of the first scenes where she's painting the wall where she like touches scratches the wall and it reminded me so much of that sound effect in Twin Peaks where Bill Hastings is scratching his head that I think I commented on your (laughs) podcast Andy because I love that sound (laughs) and that was great but you know so it was it was using a lot of things that I think have um, been done before It, it just didn't interest me I, I agree. Yeah. Wow. I still have a lot to say, but never mind. <laughs> I felt so, I felt a bit like you, Anders, where I was like, what is the point of this movie? And I got out of it and I opened my phone and the first thing I saw, this is just a bit of an, you know, an adjacent anecdote to the film, but I looked at my phone and the first thing I saw was that the day that the AFL had come out in support of marriage equality in Australia, the Brisbane officers had to be evacuated because there was a bomb threat. And part of my anger at having to sit through, um, well, you know, all of this awful debate about marriage equality and that, that, you know, everyone deserves the same rights as everyone else was transferred kind of like just crashed with this anger that I had of having to sit through mother. And I was just so mad at everything anyway. And so that was just a moment that kind of spoke to me and I was like, this movie did nothing at all. And the world is shit also. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. See, for me, it was more like an exorcism of that sort of feeling. Because, yes, the world is shit. And, you yeah. know, you can also do the whole, you know, she's the earth mother, she, the house mm. is the world, all this sort of reading of it. Mm. You know, in this case, I've heard constantly trying to ask people to leave, mm. you know, is the natural, you know, immunological response for the earth to try and get rid of things mm. or to try and dispose of stuff that's hurting it and killing it. So, in a way, it was just like this woman who is this creation, you know, in one way of reading it, you know, of, you know, Harvey Abadim's poet, or the capital H, him, as the... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. capital H, H-I-M, yeah. to quote Lady Gaga. And to quote <laughs> the, the credits uh, of the and film. The, and the end credits of the film. So, I mean, does that mean that he's God? That's one reading, yeah. And yeah, he gave yeah. his only son to his creation. So, so does that mean creators are God? Does that mean Darren Aronofsky's God? We're God yeah, to this podcast. The first yeah. half yeah. of the film was the Old Testament, right? And the second half yeah, was, yeah. Um, you know, Jesus finally on the earth and is too pure and too amazing. And that, that um, he is above humans because humans will always go to the worst possible um, ends of their capabilities. Mm. That's it, yeah. right? Speaking of... Um, religious allegories or, you know, not allegories. Some of it reminded me there's this bit where, you know, where in the final kind of sequence where they're all, there's all this mob coming to the house and someone shouts out, it's the poet, and then runs in. I just couldn't get the life of Brian mm, out, of mm-hmm. my, out of my mind. Definitely. <laughs> when the mob is chasing Spike Milligan and he's, like, skipping yeah. around, I just thought, God, this movie, you yeah. know, life of Brian. Um, but... but 
you know, I'd watch Life of Brian any day. Yeah, same. Yeah. Um, but no, there was uh, the whole Abrianic, you know, Abraham kill me a son mm. thing. Um, mm. Yeah, it was, you know, it was taking it really, really far. But, I mean, it wasn't just that. I mean, it was probably, like, there's more religious stuff you can read into it if you want to or if you've mm. got a different background, which I just think means that alone, if you can read that much into it, then it can't be a crap film or a failure. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so, yeah, there is a lot in it. I just hated it. As an experience. As an experience for me, I would watch something else that provoked my thought and that mm. gave me, like, you know, 10, 50 readings if I, I enjoyed it. And if... The, and I did not. I, a, I agree. And B, if the readings uh, or the allegorical significance or whatever said something interesting. I, I, I'm not sure that telling the Old Testament story in the context of Jennifer Lawrence in the house, it, why do we need that? Uh, yeah. There's so many amazing films about female suffering, like Joan of Arc was obviously invo- invoked in this. Oh, I know, and that's a beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah, so, and yeah, it's about great. female suffering because women do suffer at the hands of, I don't know, you know, real awful things. Yeah, this the patriarchy. Is, I just didn't... I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, to that extent, I don't see... It being so awful. I, I, no, I don't think I have enough coherent things to say, but I really don't agree. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, look, it's a skip from me. I didn't, I, I didn't like much of it, really. But I do have to say, you know, Paramount, you know, are obviously doing a good job. Yeah. Um, Aronofsky is doing a good job. Jennifer, <laughs> sorry, can't um, Just organize the... Darinovsky. Um, <laughs> can't organize the syllables in his name. Jennifer Lawrence has talked about how what a horrific filming process she had and whether or not she's telling the truth, I don't know. But, I, I you know, they're doing a great job in selling it. You know, I, hate, I hated this movie, but I'm so glad that... I, well, I wanted to go and see it. Because I felt like I had to make up my own mind and I didn't want to be told by the masses of people who had just like delved into the depths of their film like criticism and just decided to tell people, you know, like that article that I read that said, if you're not reading it as a comedy, you're not reading it the right way. You don't understand it. You know, it's like, well, that's not a great way of, you know, engaging your your readers is is to tell them that they're doing something wrong. Anyway, so I had to go and see it for myself. For sure, yeah. But you're not suggesting our... Listeners go and see it for themselves. You can see it if you want. I hate it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I get sometimes I get a, a joy or a thrill out of watching something that I hate, mm. um, like Neon Demon last year. Great film. Um, <laughs> hilariously, I thought of Neon Demon because I thought I haven't hated something so strongly since Neon Demon. <laughs> but if I had to choose between the two, I would rewatch Neon Demon, uh, which is. Exactly. See, I never thought I would yeah, ever say. Exactly. Watch it with the sound off because it's so beautiful. I agree. <laughs> no, I agree. So, uh, whereas this, I hate it, but not in an interesting or enjoyable way. You know, I didn't have the that frisson that you get where you like hate something for passion and it's kind of electric. So surprised. I thought the performance was amazing. I thought there was so much craft in it. Even if you took Aronofsky out of it, there's so many great cinematography. Is great. The sound design is really striking. There's so much going on here. Sound is striking. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. I knew we would have a big fight about this. Me too. <laughs> This is my dear friend Beatrice. Hi. Nice to meet you. Beatrice is a healer. I do massage, sound therapy, Reiki. This woman is a saint. It's like birds fly out of the sky and land on her shoulder. Aw. It's like Snow White. Can I uh, get another bourbon, hunt? Oh, no, Doug. This is Beatrice. She's staying for dinner. Oh. You were hovering. I just figured you were part of the, the staff. Do I know you? Doug's famous. He's been on the news. I don't know why. 
I think I know you. Ever dance in Vegas? <laughs> Beatriz, played by Salma Hayek, is a masseuse and healer working in the wider Los Angeles area. So at the beginning of the movie, sets her up as a character. Then she drives to the house of a friend, Kathy, played by Connie Britton. Most of the film then takes place over a single evening in the expansive space of Kathy's home in a gated community at Newport Beach. Writer Mike White introduces a cast of characters, including Kathy's husband and two other couples. All three couples have a high-powered male as one of the partners who is in business with hotels, shopping malls, and other generally elite projects that are overseen by uh, a great imbalance of power. Beatriz, who was born in Mexico but is now a, an American citizen, is sensitive to this division, and the dinner takes an unexpected turn, although in a way that is key to the characters, Beatriz may see this unexpected turn as fate. With this very simple plot, it should be the characters and conversation that keep you drawn into the film. Andy, did it work for you? Uh, yes, and it was surprised. I was surprised actually how strong I thought this film was because it has got kind of it got fairly middling reviews to begin with. But uh, much as you know, we we brought in uh, current political and current affairs for our discussion of Mother. I could not see this film without thinking of something that happened earlier this week. So an old friend of mine was in the news for headbutting ex-Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott. And now obviously his listeners might not know um, Tony Abbott is a right-wing politician who defunded human rights groups and is generally disliked by a large proportion of the Australian public. And so when my friend Astro saw Tony Abbott walking down the street in Hobart and chose to headbutt him, it was suddenly threw up a lot of conversations around, is this the right thing to do? When you see somebody who is such an ag aggregation of power and mm. money and wants mm. more of this power... And you're, you know, a disenfranchised person who you know, has been living on the poverty line for most of your life. Then, you know, what rights do you have there? You know, can you act on them in this fairly selfish, aggressive way, or do you, you know, stay reserved and, and you try to understand? So this, there was a lot of interesting tensions in Beatrice at dinner, I thought, and um, it reminded me quite a bit of, you know, all these Facebook conversations we've been having. Mm. So um, this dynamic, I thought, was was really, really well explored by Mike White's script. And that was my favourite thing, actually, about this, was just the, the conversations. There was so much... I mean, it was, a, you know, it was a sprawling Spanish colonial mansion, which was, you know, beautifully filmed. There was some nice sunsets and beaches and all that sort of stuff. So it looked really great. It, was, it got away from its potentially theatrical origin... Well, potentially theatrical tendencies, I think. Um, there were some really great performances. John Lithgow recently awarded an Emmy for his portrayal of Winston Churchill in The Crown. Was I thought, you know, embodied this kind of Trump-esque <laughs> figure really well. Early on, you know, his character, Doug Strutt, says, I have opinions and because I have money, people listen to them. Which is pretty much, you know, mostly what you need to know before, you, you know, this, you learn about his property tycoon tendencies and how they've affected, you know, people like him have affected the life of Beatrice. Um, so, yeah, I really, really liked it. I thought it was really, really strong, really enjoyable. Pithy, 82 Minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. good watch. Yeah, it got a lot done in 82 minutes, didn't it? It did. It covered a lot of territory. I completely agree. I really like this more than I, I, I guess I was expecting. It, uh, you're right, the script is great. I mean, Mike White's a really great writer, I think, now. We can all sort of safely say that. Yeah. Uh, and he, the script is fantastic. Um, I thought Salma Hayek was great um, in this lead role as Beatrice. She's very... You know, she's very, as, as John Lithgow's character notes, you know, she's very serious. Um, she feels things a lot, and, you know, his argument is sort of, you know, oh, the world doesn't need your feelings, it needs the jobs that I create. And that's kind of. So there's this, you know, quite obvious in many ways binary opposition that the film sets up, but then it plays with it 
in a really interesting way. And I really enjoyed how the it sort of it didn't limit itself to this sort of realistic uh, dialogue driven dinner party setup, the setup of you know God knows how many films. It went somewhere interesting in its conclusion, and I really enjoyed that transition and I thought it earned that transition really well and particularly I, I really I was sort of almost cheering that the film um there's this sort of repeated motive of her character um in these mangroves and she she calls someone I can't remember who Neroli yeah do, do yeah, we know pros- what her relationship possibly an, an ex-lover or family member maybe so, yeah someone she's had this personal yeah. connection with and she says oh I really miss you and I miss the mangroves and so we keep on seeing these mangroves and I was thinking is this gonna be some tired narrative reveal like the final time we see the mangroves we see that there's some formative event and the film didn't do the obvious thing with the mangroves um, <laughs> scenes repetitions and it paid them off instead in this like quite emotional almost abstract kind of way and I really really appreciated that so I thought it was a really cleverly made film Mm. that's great I actually um unlike you I really didn't like the ending and I thought it was maybe not an easy way out I feel like that's a really harsh thing for me to say if I do but that's kind of what I'm getting towards like I just I just didn't didn't like the ending. I thought it was a bit too neat, a bit too poetic. I didn't quite believe that after Beatrice struggling to be heard for the entire film, the film would end in the way that it did. Mm, mm. Um, But up until that point, I really, really liked it. I thought it was very tight. The kind of the differences that, that Beatrice experiences with all of the other characters is really, really excellent. Like, you know, obviously in class upbringing lifestyle, she's very different from all of these other dinner guests and the, and the hosts, but also by just, um, she's distanced literally by urban areas. So she's, you know, she's kind of outside of her comfort zone because her car is broken down. Um, and then also in certain scenes in the house, she has to go into another area of the house and she's kind of on the outside. There's this one scene where she's watching them all having fun and she's alone. And that was very, very interesting comment. I thought on Mm. the way that she is forced to engage with, um, you know, the other classes kind of around her. I thought it was really interesting that John Lithgow character, the mogul, yeah. really kind of great that he insists at this throughout this dinner on provoking Beatrice um, and the other guests don't see his behaviour as out of the ordinary. This is part of why this movie is kind of how this movie achieves its greatness and, and kind of gets its point across. To them, I think they're all entitled elites, as you said Andy with that quote and it's just the natural way of things Um, and that Beatrice for being someone who wants to stand up for herself and for the other people around her she's the interferer and I really loved that the film very successfully kind of communicated that I think it puts that across and maybe expects the audience to just believe that and accept it and be on board with Beatrice and see the other people as the enemies and I don't know if it was quite complex enough to really... It could have gone a bit further in that regard, I mm. think. But mm. They were all a bit, like, broadly painted. Mm, yeah, I got um, a different reading. Yeah. But I do, you know, I do did like kind of where, where it was going for a lot of it. it well, I, yeah, the Lifko character was particularly interesting because he was... 
I mean, on the surface, he's, I mean, he's the wealthiest of this group of people and uh, he's sort of in the news, you know, um, for various, you know, corporate misdemeanors and whatnot. And, you know, he's sort of like this hard right economic motel developer. Trump-esque, like Trump, like, although not really, but uh, no, that's, that's, I think that's actually a facile comparison that people have made because he's not, he doesn't behave in the way that Donald Trump does at all. But anyway, he's this wealthy yeah, property. He's more intelligent. Yeah, he is. Um, but he's not as unlikable, I found, as some of the other characters, particularly the the one played by um, brother director, the um, Duplass. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, could yeah, not stand yeah. that <laughs> he dude. He was hilarious. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definition I, of douche. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, yeah, and I mean, he had an interesting relationship with Beatrice. And as she said, she was like, I feel like I know you. And he, he didn't just completely outright dismiss her after... Like, he was the one who engaged with her in a way that it, the host didn't. Yeah, I mean, interesting. and that is possibly because that's where he, you know, that's how he gets his rocks off, because oh, he yeah. loves to, provoke you know, provoke and to yeah. put other people down and to continually say, you know, the way that he introduces himself, as you said, Andy, is I'm rich and loud and so people listen to me or whatever it was. That he knows he's not inherently worth worthy, but he, he is in that position, and so he'll milk it. Yeah, yeah. that's why I like that other dynamic between him and Beatrice, where yeah. he knows that he can't dominate her, and he, can't, he hasn't won her over, and he's yeah. just not being sycophantic like the others. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, what I really liked was the way that he got to... Everyone, I feel, got to say a bit, a bit of their own. Like mm-hmm. every, It wasn't so much empathy. It was more just like giving a little voice to everyone. So the women tended to be fairly subservient and very used to being endlessly patient mm-hmm. in this ridiculous, you know, ridiculously affluent lifestyle, which they would, will get if they will put up with everything they have to put up with. Um, but, of course, Beatrice had no time for that sort of stuff. And it was also, a, like, having a history even myself in complementary medicine, it was nice to see that and just done in a non-judgmental way, just like, mm. yes, this is what it's like to yeah, be Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It was just like, yeah, okay, that's part of her character. And even though, you know, you, there were, I can imagine people watch this and empathise more, you know, with other people rather than, mm. rather than Beatrice. Mm. Um, even then, you know, it I doesn't... I can't imagine that, though, because it does, it quite... I, I mean, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a sympathizer with her and so that's why I can't imagine it. But I feel like it's very well scripted yes. because yeah. John Lithgow's first comment or um, almost first, co- first comment to Beatrice is, how did you get here? Were you, were you an illegal immigrant, basically, from Mexico? And she says no. And then all of the others say, well, you know, why are you asking her that? And, and he just says it's very common for people to be illegal immigrants and to... Um, you know, get into the country that way. But then later on, he admits to doing illegal things. And I just thought that's so incredible that he's just, he basically will own up to all of this awful behavior mm. because he knows he can get away with it. Yeah. And, and then Beatrice Googles him and there's been, you know, protests and all of these news reports about what a horrible human being he is. And yet he's still where he is because um, yeah, he knows that he's in this uh, untouchable, almost elite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact he will listen to her, mm. and he will, you know, listen to her sing a song, and he will ask questions of her. And be that was an interesting scene, wasn't it? Yeah, because it was, they yeah. were all. They seemed to all be exceptionally moved by her performance, which was her song, which I mean was. I mean, was that was like that? Yes, song? they they want you know the um, exoticism of mm, another culture, mm. and they want its beauty, and they want to you know look at the sky, yeah, but, but they don't want to actually engage, and they don't yeah, want exactly. anyone challenging the. Culture. Yeah, I, I, and that's yeah, yeah that, that is what I got. I mean, there's that scene where Lyft goes character goes out to see her while she's getting a car towed. 
Um, and he goes um, something like, oh, you know, how much more do we have 20 or 30 years? We're dying. Try to enjoy yourself kind of thing. Mm. And um, it did... I got the sense that he's he says these kinds of platitudes. He goes hunting. He he intellectualizes all these activities as as if he's well. As he says, I've tasted from the full buffet of life. But um, he I don't know. It didn't seem like he was particularly enjoying life. I was like, are you enjoying life, John Lisko, character? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't didn't think that he was. Um, which was interesting. Yeah, I, there was a lot in it for an eighty-five minute film. It, yeah, it yeah, provoked a lot. Yeah, of interesting ideas. Um, also, I noticed, um, it was funny, Mike White has written and possibly is directing another film called Brad's Status, which is out, and oh. Andy and I saw the trailer just before the movie, and I commented on Mike White. Um, anyway, I didn't realise that Beatrice at Dinner was written by him until I saw his name in the credits. The score for the movie... Um, for Beatrice at Dinner is written by Mark Mothersborough and it's the exact same score I'm almost 100% certain as the score from Enlightened which was also scored by Mark uh, Mothersborough also written, written and created by Mark oh, White God. which is fine but I just couldn't get it out of my head I mean thematically they're quite similar stories both about a, um, a very passionate very sensitive woman who struggles against a large corporation and tries to out the corporation's illegal um, and immoral behaviour and you know, who've kind of had their lives shattered by people who think that the world owes them a favour. Everyone should go and watch Enlightened is my... Yes, I love that show. And Beatrice at Dinner, I think. And And Beatrice Beatrice at Dinner, yeah, yeah, I think it's a great film. Yeah, yeah. Hark! What's that funky beat? Get out your phone and tap that calendar app and get your fingers ready. It's the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Um, at Acme, the Disney Nature Festival is running until October 8th, where you can see films like Chimpanzees, Monkey Kingdom, narrated by Tina Fey, and Bears, narrated by John C. Riley. Does Bears have an exclamation point? No, actually. Oh, it sounded like it. it well, it <laughs> Disney... Disney Nature. Nature. It's one, it's one word okay. now. Oh, yeah. Disney Nature. Yeah, they, did a, they made a seri- whole series of these yes. docos. Great. Meanwhile, at Astor, you could spend an evening with John le Carré in which he'll discuss the creation of his character George Smiley and its various iterations in a live simulcast from the Royal Albert Hall that's taking place on September 30 at 2.30pm. That's great, I love John le Carré. Me too. At 5pm on the same day, you can catch Blade Runner, the director's cut, before Blade Runner 2049. And finally, on October 8th, The Princess Bride is playing for its 30th anniversary screening. Get along to that. Um, also, the Girls on Film Festival is running from October 6th till, till 8th at the Brunswick Town Hall with screenings of Spice World, The Love Witch, The Craft and Sapphires, along with a host of Australian short films written and directed and portraying the talents of women alongside music and art by local fem- female trans and non-binary artists. Une demeure somptueuse, un parc romantique, un essaim de jeunes filles très belles, Apparemment insouciante et heureuse. Movie is a video streaming subscription service that gives you a new film every day, which you have a month to watch. As a listener to Cultural Capital, you can sign up for a free month of streaming by going to movie.com/culturalcapital and clicking Watch Now. Hello, what would you like to single out from this current movie slate? Well, um, I would recommend a film called Vice and Virtue by Roger Vadim from 1963, and there's only four days left to watch it, so I think you better 
hurry up and and do so. So this is um, an historical fable starring Catherine Deneuve in her first notable film role as the virtuous Justine and Annie Giraudot, who I loved so much in Three Rooms in Manhattan, which I recommended on the last podcast, as the stand-in for Vice and the self-declared whore Juliet. So they are sisters. And I think this is based in part on um, Marquis de Sade's Justine. The man propositions, the whore rejects. So it's set against the backdrop of an occupied France in World War II. There's a whole bunch of, there's like, it's an anti-fascist set piece and it's really brilliant. I won't go into it too much, but it's just this incredible film. Not the best, like it's a little bit stagey and a little bit overly theatrical, but as a drama and as this beautiful aesthetic portrait, it's really, really wonderful. There's a, a line that I just want to read out because... Uh, it reminded me very much of where we are right now in this world. An exchange between a Nazi officer who brags about being even worse than Hitler and the woman, um, and Juliet, the woman who is Vice. Um, interesting, though, Vice is not condemned by the film, which is an important point to make, I think, in these kind of narratives. So Sean Dorff, the Nazi officer, says, I gave him proof. Juliet says, faked proof. And Sean Dorff says, in time it will become real. Um, anyway, Excellent. Trey's interesting. Um, yeah. Anyway, good film, good performances. Yeah, that's my recommendation. Cool, Anders. My recommendation that I'm dying to see is Claire Simon's documentary, The Graduation. Uh, this documentary played at MIF this year, and I missed it sadly, but happily, Ruby has picked it up. So it's a Wiseman-esque portrait of the top French film school, La Femise, sort of like one of the big film schools uh, on the sort of art European art circuit, I guess. I When I first heard of it, I thought, oh, is this just going to be a boring sort of commercial to this institution and the power of cinema, blah, blah, blah. But from what I've heard, it's actually much deeper than that and sort of critically interrogates what role these sort of feeder institutions play within the broader cultural circuits that influence the films that we talk about on this very podcast, the films that we see, what gets cultural capital in the in the theoretical sense, uh, not the podcast sense. Yeah, who who's in, who's out, all that kind of stuff. I think the film, uh, from what I understand, I haven't seen it, but I've talked to many people who have seen it who have said it's a really interesting look at the role that formal film schools play in the broader culture and indeed what role cinema then plays. And it would be very interesting to watch, I think, too, as an Australian to compare and contrast with our Australian film school, the yeah, ASTRS. good point. Mm. If you want to hear further thoughts on that, you can listen to our MIF podcast in which Anwen and I variously speak at length about the graduation. Yes. Was, it, was everything I just said accurate? Totally. Brilliant. Can't wait to say it. As always. <laughs> um, my pick uh, is uh, Raul Ruiz's 1997 film Genealogies of a Crime, because Mubi are currently running a season called Raul Ruiz's Dreams. And this film also starred Catherine Deneuve, um, along with Michelle mm. Piccoli, and it opens with the quote, nothing so resembles virtue as true crime, and then proceeds to tell the story of a murder mystery in a very elliptical fashion. Um, so Catherine Deneuve plays a lawyer who's renowned for taking on lost causes and losing cases, and she takes on the, co- the case of a man called René, who seems extremely guilty in the opening scenes of murdering a woman called Jean, sorry, Jean who's also played by Deneuve. Um, René's aunt is a member of the Franco-Belgian Psychoanalytic Society, who may or may not be incriminated in this murder. 
And Ruiz is really, really interested in uh, framing and using oblique distancing effects between characters and the camera. And uh, he's not really that interested in fully realising characters. They're more kind of like pawns, I suppose, to be moved, moved around to explore themes that he's really interested in. And this can be really annoying for some viewers. And he treats their kind of freedoms and desires as more like um, stakes, I suppose, in a bigger story. And so this can come across as quite cold, but then both of these aspects can also be seen as quite enjoyable in a meta kind of way because he never lets you ever forget that you're also kind of part of the film in a way. So this kind of meta-acknowledgement becomes really attractive to people who are really semi-literate, I suppose, because often you know, it's very easy to put the proscenium arch up and just start thinking things in a different way. And so Ruiz kind of expects this almost. So he also uses like psycho- psychological profiling and shifting identities and that sort of thing in a really interesting way, which for someone who's been mainly brought up on American versions of this, it's, I, know, I found it quite striking. Mm. Um, so Genealogies of a Crime is a really good way, I think, to get into Ruiz's films because they're extremely dense and he's very, very prolific. <clears throat> you have 28 days left to watch this. So I would recommend Genealogies of a Crime. Cool. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. And now to our top three one-location movies. So this is, of course, based on Mother, which took place in one big rambling house, and almost, in a way, took mm. uh, can be linked to Beatrice Adina, which took place in another sure. very different rambling house for the large part. Let's kick off with number three. Anders, what was your number three in your top three one-location movies? This was a great idea for a top three, so thank you, Andy, for coming up with it. Uh, My number number three film is Strange About a Lake, Alain Giraudy's 2013 thriller. Uh, Most of the action in which, I said that right, takes place in a gay cruising area near a lake. So uh, the men in this film cruise each other, they have sex, they swim, they chat, they, you know, ruminate. And in one case, they murder someone. Uh, Nobody responds to how you think they would to this key narrative event. And the whole thing is shot through with a sort of kind of beguiling menace in a way. if beguiling didn't mean enchanting, but instead like slowly creeping you out. Key to that, I think, is this uh, location, this sort of secluded lake um, area, you know, lots of wind through the trees and that kind of thing. And there's just something about watching these naked male bodies in the wilderness that's really interesting. And yeah, there's sort of an erotic tension there and as well as a, a, a um, you know, straightforward narratively driven tension around this murder plot which one of the men uh, sees um, yeah and see a, a good to compare with the ornithologist from earlier this year in terms of queering the forests mm. we'll need to do more of that <laughs> excellent yeah it does sound really interesting that was my, yeah that was my number three it's a great film do recommend it apparently, what's your number three? Oh yeah apparently it's a, a clever confronting and elusive story of desire I'd say that yeah I would agree with whoever wrote that in the age spelt with a, there's a time on the front cover of the DVD. It's <laughs> well the age with two T's in the... What? Uh, yes, I have, Jake Wilson. R.I.P. in peace, physical media. Eloise, what was your number three? 
Well, my number three is a film called Transatlantic from 1931, made oh. by William K. Howard. So this is a film that is just the best of its genre, in my opinion. And this genre is, you know, something about like an ocean liner cruise films, um, where one uh, an entire film takes place on a ship in the duration of like a single trip across an ocean a lot of dramatic plot lines in take place you know in a small space much like i think this was, film was somewhat of a precursor to um a multi-star hit uh, like grand hotel which was a big you know in a big hotel lots of famous people anyway mm. so there's a film also called luxury liner from 1932 which is one of these kind of stories but basically it's a lot of storylines um intertwining um you know love affairs happenstance meetings a murder some alcoholics i feel like maybe this is cheating a little bit to call it a single location film because obviously the premise is that there's all sorts of rooms that people can go to and exist but it is a single location in the same way as something like alfred hitchcock's lifeboat from the from the 1940s was another kind of single set one of Hitchcock's same single set films which he had a few that no doubt will come up in this top three um, from a few of us Um, you know in that kind of way but Lifeboat is perhaps um, more of a successful single set film because it's just a dinghy (laughs) Um, um, in any case Transatlantic is is my number three great who does that star film uh, Myrna Loy and Edmund Lowe. I had not heard of this film. That sounds really cool. Um, yeah, I saw it. It was only just recently restored from a number of extant film prints, I think. So I don't know when it will get a chance to see it again. It's one of those rare ones that I'm recommending, but I don't know if we can all go out and get it. But yes. maybe, you know, it's one to put on the list. Much like I did last episode with The Hairy Bird, which no one can see. <gasps> yes! <laughs> um, but there is actually a Hairy Bird screening party at my house shortly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, good. Because <laughs> more people need to see it. Um, <clears throat> my number three is a 2013 film called Locke, um, which stars Tom Hardy and was written and directed by Stephen Knight. And this um, has its single location as a vehicle, which um, is all shot in real time. And concerns a construction foreman, Ivan Locke, played by Tom Hardy, who is driving from Birmingham to London to be present at the birth of his illegitimate child. It's extremely dialogue-focused. Ivan is basically on the phone the entire time, um, variously between members of his family and his work, because he's about to oversee the largest con- concrete pour in uh, European history outside of nuclear military projects. And um, <laughs> this is something that's really huge for him. So it's kind of very theatrical with the way the, the camera's kind of trying to wring every single angle it can out of it. It's kind of very conscious of the space. But um, it, it's repetitive nature of like seeing the highway and seeing the visuals from his perspective and seeing him on the phone is kind of a sense this almost monotonous exterior while he's going through this extreme, highly emotional and gradually unfolding story. Um, I thought he was fantastic. I mean, if you're going to put anyone in a car and you know, make a film based on their face, which I thought was done very well with Jennifer Lawrence's face. I thought her, was very, her face was very expressive <laughs> in Mother, but nevertheless. So uh, Tom Hardy is like totally in control, and he's, it's kind of like an interesting psychological perform- portrait of this kind of very calm and collected man under this extreme pressure. Mm. Um, and he's got this very good moralistic nature to his conversations as well, where he realises he's in this extraordinarily difficult situation. And the way he kind of teases that out ethically, I think, is really interesting. And ethics will come up in my number two film as well. Mm, cool. Uh, okay, my number two is 
Henry Gamble's birthday party, Stephen Cohn's 2015 American indie film, and this has such a great use of space. So he quite expertly choreographs a series of small dramas that take place over the course of a day and night in a McMansion somewhere in America. The central storyline follows the 17-year-old birthday boy who's the son of an evangelical pastor as he sort of comes to terms with his sexuality, but there's a lot of other stuff going on as well. So this Henry Gamble is the main character of the film, but everyone sort of has various um, storylines and, and, and interesting things going on um, at his birthday party. So in addition to its formal excellence, what distinguishes this film, I think, is its generous attitude towards its characters. So while you're left with no doubt as to where the filmmaker's sympathies lie, and they're not with uh, the evangelical church, there's a gentle humour and the sheer niceness of all these beautiful, very white people diffuses this criticism to interesting effect. Um, and in the current American climate, it's an attitude that's either beguilingly rebellious or dangerously naive. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but the film makes superb use of its single location, this McMansion. Um, he choreographs the drama around the house's many rooms. There's a car parked out the front that they, the film uses. And uh, in the film's key motif, there's the house's swimming pool. And swimming pools are traditionally coded as, you know, sexualized, almost transgressive places. And he rings a lot of really great material about, you know, coming of age and all that kind of stuff through contrasting the relative liberation of the pool with the far more codified world that the adults inhabit around it. It's a really well-made film. What's it called? Uh, Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. It, I mean, yeah, it does a lot with its one location, which makes it really interesting. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's my number two. Eloise? My number two is a really, really obvious one. Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. Rope. Yeah, which I had to put in because I've written on this quite extensively in my thesis. I also wrote an essay on it for Brightwall Darkroom, that online film magazine. Um, but I love this film. I've seen it so many times and I could watch it again right now. So this was Hitchcock's first colour film um, starring Farley Granger and John Dahl as two men they're you know they're kind of coded as in a homosexual relationship living in an apartment together on Sutton Place but of course because this was made during the code it's never outrightly stated that they were a couple just that that they're roommates or whatever but basically apart from one shot uh, the opening shot which is a camera crane shot tracking into a window with a closed Uh, withdrawn blinds the rest of the film takes place inside their apartment brandon and phillips apartment and they have murdered a classmate and they're having a dinner party with um they the murdered classmate in their book um in their kind of a piece of furniture and then they're having a dinner party around it and they just um want to kind of show off and see if they can get away with it so that's the premise um also this is famously a film that has sort of suggested it's all one take although obviously it was not Mm -hmm. um so it kind of hides its uh, hides a lot of its cuts anyway it's a really excellent film and i love this one because the um the idea of space and time is so well intertwined because it's, it all takes place 
in one space and it all takes place in one kind of 80 minute period um, and so that both of those are allegedly uncut or you know undisrupted is is really keen is played with really really well especially when it's like a, it's not a murder mystery and interestingly it is one of those films that like you know you know that the murder has taken place and it's a matter of you know counting down until when are these murderers going to be discovered which uh, certain other films will also play with although that's not I suppose the main kind of way in which a lot of these films you know will progress but that's where the tension is and there's a lot of tension um the tension is increased by dynamic between interior and exterior space and oral intrusion so spatial dimensions are expanded via oral intrusion rather than via you know multiple kind of spatial locations yeah. and whatnot um and so that's why this film is so so interesting for me at least is because the tension is supported by that really really constricted spatial movement and the um, surround sounds from from outside that kind of comment on what's going on in the apartment. Right, it's yeah, it would be a terrible podcast list if we didn't include rope. And have it's you? The game changer. I just want to do a shout out to uh, D. A. Miller for writing <laughs> the journal article Anal, Anal Rope. rope. Which I do recommend, and it's all about how those edits, these like invisible edits in the film, are the hinges of the closet that's in the oh. It's very good, it's, and that it's hilarious great. at the same time. I'll put that in the yeah, show notes. Yeah, yeah, I really recommend reading it. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. An- anal rope. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's great. It's excellent. <laughs> okay. My number two is nothing like that. It's um, Duncan Jones' directorial debut, the 2009 film Moon, which explores artificial intelligence and ethics and exploration and loneliness and identity and a lot more things as we follow the employee um, astronaut Sam Bell of Lunar Industries, played by Sam Rockwell. Um, and so he's stationed in a, in a moon station and is nearing the end of his multi-year contract um, his only companion is an AI unit called Gertie, voiced by Kevin Spacey. And then due to un- some sort of unspecified interference, his communication mainframe has been unable to transmit any communications back to Earth for around three years, which is accentuating his disconnection from his family and his life back there. So um, a routine exercise in uh, harvesting some minerals on the, Earth, oh, sorry, on the moon surface goes disastrously wrong, and then he experiences a string of hallucinations which um, has him very paranoid and the viewer questioning his sanity and what is constituting reality. So I thought really, really loved the way that um, Duncan Jones put this uh, story together, and he seems straight off the bat for this debut to have this amazing ability to, put to, uh, to, to make this sort of visually interesting and to not use the moon station for its claustrophobic purposes, which we get in a lot of other films on this list, but more to accentuate the, the psychological journey that um, Sam is taking. So it's uh, it was a pretty striking film. I thought it was uh, really one of the better films of 2009 when it came out. Um, something I'm kind of still hoping he's going to be following up on it. There's, he announced that there's a spiritual sequel to the film coming out later this year, a film called Mute, which has nothing to do with the moon itself, but is, is thematically, I think, adjacent to it. Uh, I thought I've always loved Sam Rockwell. I thought he's I'm mm-hmm. amazed that he hasn't been, you know, won awards and been in high, more high-profile films. And I thought this is one of his right. best performances. And again, I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't have Moon somewhere on our nine-film list. And what's your number cool. one, Anders? Well, my number one is La Notte, Michelangelo Antonioni's 1961 film, which does have a couple of scenes in other locations, but the vast majority of this movie is set in one place. (laughs) Um, Disclaimer. Anyway, guys, I've been doing some soul-searching, 
And I think Michelangelo Antonioni is my favourite director of all time. Really? Oh my god. I think he may just be the greatest director who ever lived. Wow. No further correspondence required. Um, anyway, please one... correspond, we'll give you some... <laughs> no, please do, if you want, please do. Anyway, one of his greatest films is La Notte, this portrait of an ennui-riddled upper-middle-class Italian couple in the 1960s, as all his films are. Anyway, um, <laughs> not true. There, no, it's not. There are a couple of scenes in other places at the start, including a hospital, but the bulk of the film's action takes place in these ornate, sprawling grounds occupied by an extremely wealthy acquaintance of this couple's. And the titular night mostly consists of this raucous dinner party that this very wealthy guy hosts. Crucially, despite the festivities... Nobody on the grounds is remotely happy, least of all the central couple, couple played by Marcello Mastriani and Jean Moreau. Antonioni is so bloody good, you guys. He's so good at so much, but for these purposes, I, I just think there's nobody better, or at least, no, I shouldn't say that. He's very good at <laughs> filming architecture, and he draws sort of exquisite parallels between the inhuman, monstrous uh, opulence of this estate and the facile, tedious, even desperate lives of the people who occupy it. And it's really, it's this really interesting disjuncture between like the history and the, you know, the time, this idea of art and architecture traversing time because uh, presumably this estate's you know, is, is, you know, there's beautiful architecture there that's, you know, goes back centuries. And yet the people who inhabit, it's, it's this weird inhuman uh, mishmash with the human occupants, the people who occupy this mansion. And there's sort of this famous moment when it starts raining in this film and everyone who's there at the dinner party goes a little crazy. And it's this incursion of the elements that they're all so disconnected from thanks to their, you know, socioeconomic status. And it's sort of this perfect uh, exception that proves Antonioni's rule about... You know, it's a perfect incursion into this idea of, um, of creepy, of, of yet depersonalising architecture that I think uh, so fascinated Antonioni across so many of his films, not just this film. Um, yeah, it's, it's the perfect moment in this movie, which is really... I'm just... I'm re I really love how melancholy the film is. It's got this really... Sad, existential sadness to it and I know it's a weird thing to say that I love that but I do I really do I think he's a master filmmaker I could talk I could rant yeah about same him I really time. adore his stuff but yeah yeah I yeah I love this film a lot and I love the the ending of the, where yeah where the couple leave and then, should we no let's not spoil let's I won't spoil I won't spoil uh, but in Bosnia of course anyway the <laughs> yeah it's just yeah in terms of um, human figures interacting with vast imposing architecture and what all that architecture signifies about history and about the you know the what the uh, alienation of time I guess that's what makes it really really interesting cool yes Eloise, what's your number one mine is Dogville Really? Oh, nice. I did not see that coming. Last One Trees film from <laughs> 2002. So this, again, I feel a little bit like I'm cheating because this film has a single location more in form than in plot mm -hmm. um, because it's a drama told on a very minimal soundstage set that is 
directly in, I think it is actually directly entwined with the way the story is told this set as well as it just being you know kind of the overall form of the film so it does count in terms of uh, you know of being a very kind of sophisticated single set film I think Absolutely. Um, so Nicole Kidman is Grace a woman who is on the run um, and there is some sketchy criminality in her past and comes to a small town in the Rocky Mountains. Anyway, there's a cast of characters, um, so it's basically told on a soundstage, and there's you know painted or masking taped little areas of the stage that, that declare themselves as different spaces of this town, different locations, and the, you know the the kind of it, it plays out in this way. So it's basically almost like a, a play with no props, no settings, no nothing. Interestingly, I think given this particular spatial setup, the film is concerned overall with the community and stranger dialectic and explores fractured identities through this setup, imagining the soundstage as the village, a democratic utopia that is unable to exist in its own idea of that. And I just find that a really, really interesting premise and I don't want to go into it too much because I feel like there'd be no point in me talking about it if you haven't seen the film. So, uh, although maybe you have because, you know, we all love Lars von Trier, right? Um, yeah, mostly, yeah. Mostly. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, yeah. just in terms of it being um, a film made with the barest of possible single sets to explore political, mm. cultural ideas like this is just inherently kind of of interest to me. Also narrated by John Hurt mm, um, and starring Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall, yeah, yeah. And many other great people. But it's just such an interesting film and it doesn't... I mean, it might not sound like it would be something that would impress you, but, you know, uh, Von Trier is always um, challenging with... Um, new techniques and new approaches to film um, and to cinematic devices. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's just a great film. Mm. Mm, yeah, good, yeah, good call. Um, my number one is um, fairly obvious. I mean, I did consider 12 Angry Men, and I oh, yes. did not get around to seeing my dinner with Andre, which I understand is an excellent example of a one location film. Yes. But I ended up going for another Hitchcock, which is, of course, Rear Window, which, for those of you who don't know, is tells the story of L.B. Jeffries, played by James Stewart, who's a photographer with a broken leg stuck recovering in his apartment, which overlooks a very busy courtyard. And from this vantage point, Jeffrey keeps abreast of the private lives of his neighbours, and during which he spots a suspicious man leaving in the middle of the night with a large suitcase. And Jeffries becomes obsessed with who or what is inside the suitcase. And at first he and his girlfriend Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, who he is implausibly unsure about marrying, um, just treat the whole experience as a cheap thrill and then are unsure about whether a murder has taken place, has even taken place at all. At all. But of course Hitchcock's camera legendarily forces the audience into this kind of voyeuristic collusion with Jeffries and we're kind of forced to sit forward and look closer towards the next elusive clue as it may or may not come. But also the drama ends up becoming very, very real for Jeffries and um, the characters from the murder story end up crossing the line from fascination to threat. And that's where the movie starts getting really, really exciting. So, of course, we had to include Rear Window. Mm-hmm. And, and the voyeurism is, in, is a key part of Strange by the Lake too. It was an interesting uh, thing about one, per, one location films, this mm. idea of, yeah. Mm. Maybe it's just a, a way spaces. of you know, getting the audience to be invested in a single location without any other, you know, dynamics to yeah. really keep us invested. It's just that, you know, that we can't look away. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Which is exactly. all about the scope of of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> 101. <laughs> 
Okay, so thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 33 of Cultural Capital. Um, please enthusiastically rate or review us on iTunes. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us at the Cult Cap Pod on Twitter and Cultural Capital Podcast on Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Laurie Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And thank you. We think you're great. Thank you.